choir, that was elegant. Thank you. I'm torn. I want to clap because I want to say thank you, and I wanted to be still just because it's worth resting in that beautiful, beautiful anthem. Thank you. I want to take a moment of personal privilege to honor the, the most important man in my life. Every kid ought to have a dad like I had. Not every kid did, but I did. It's his birthday today, and I want you to join me in thanking God for my dad. And we'll all get verklempt, and then we'll get, keep going here. <laughs> it's good to welcome you to worship. For those of you who are visiting with us the first time, I'm Pastor Mark, and uh, I add my welcome to that of our colleagues earlier today. I'm glad that you said, I want to be here and worship the Lord. We welcome you to uh, Chapel Hill. This last week was a, a big day for, or a big week for uh, a lot of our team. We went back to Indi- Indianapolis for a church planting conference. Our denomination is encouraging us to consider church planting. We really don't know that much about what it means to plant new churches out of an existing church. And so we went back to find out more, to study and to learn. And it was good. It was grueling, uh, but it was very informative. It didn't start out very well for me, however. I flew in with a friend on Monday. We landed. Uh, We pulled up that wonderful little magical Uber app, and we told them the church that we wanted to go to. and, And voila, a a little red Toyota shows up to spirit us away to that church. We drove a lot longer, however, than I had anticipated driving. Finally, we arrived at a very large campus. It was out in the middle of nowhere. The driver drove us around and around. We were looking for signs of life and not really being very successful. Ultimately, she just dropped us off on the sidewalk and we began to wheel our, our suitcases around the campus until we found a door that was open. We went inside, ah, and there we found a receptionist, so things were starting to look up. And so we said, uh, we said to her, where is the church planting conference? <laughs> she said, there is no church planting conference here. I said, isn't this Traders Point Church? She said, yes, it is. And it's one of four campuses. The campus that you're looking for is 25 minutes in the other direction. The direction you just came. So we pulled out our magical Uber app and we called up a a blue Ford Fusion this time, retraced the miles we had just driven, and finally arrived in the place that we were supposed to have been at in the first place. It was a very circuitous route. It involved a lot of frustration, a lot of wasted time, until we finally got to the place we were supposed to have been at in the beginning. Does that sound like a prophet you know? If you are joining us for the first time, we are studying the book of Jonah, the story of the prophet Jonah. God called Jonah. He said, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the people there. They were very awful people, evil, wicked people. He did not want to go preach to the people of Nineveh, and so we know he jumped in a boat and headed the opposite direction. God said, not so fast, cowboy. He throws a storm on them, nearly sinks the ship. He fesses up to the sailors that he's the one responsible for the storm. They pitch him overboard in hope of placating the gods. The god was, in fact, placated, but God wasn't done yet with Jonah. And so he appointed a large fish to come and swallow him up for a three-day spa. (laughs) And so for those three days, he sat and contemplated in the belly of those you know, in that gastric juice, uh, carcass, fish carcass setting, he contemplated how much easier it might have been if he had just obeyed the Lord in the first place. But God had Jonah's attention now. And uh, after this three-day layover, 
disobedient Jonah finally ends up heading back to the direction that God wants him to go, wanted him to go in the first place. We pick it up in the last verse of chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. I want, to, I want to share with you just the first part of the story and we'll pick up the rest later on. Here we go. And the Lord spoke to the fish and he vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the word of the Lord. When we started the book of Jonah, the very first verse, we heard this. This is how Jonah begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's how the story begins. And of course, he did just the opposite. We've talked about that, but you know, it's hard for us to relate to to, these, uh, to this kingdom that doesn't even exist anymore. Let me throw this at you. Imagine that the word of the Lord came to a Jewish rabbi named Shlomo in Brooklyn in 1942 at the height of the Nazi Third Reich. Imagine the Lord said to Shlomo, I want you to rise and I want you to go to Berlin. Now you're getting the idea. How enthused do you think Shlomo would be about that calling? And how receptive do you think that Hitler and Goering and Garibos and Himmler and all of the rest might be to the message from this Brooklyn Jew. When you think about it that way, it might give you a little great, a greater understanding of what Jonah must have experienced when that word came from the Lord. He was terrified at the prospect and horrified at the possibility. He was terrified at the suicidal prospect of what he was being called to do. Perhaps even more, he was horrified at the possibility that God might have forgiveness to offer to these wicked people. And so he ran the other way. But after the circuitous route that we have been journeying through got him back to point A. And so now we've discovered that the opening of chapter 3 echoes almost exactly the opening verse of the book when we read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You didn't get that, right? It was as if the Lord is saying, okay, Jonah, let's just try this once more, shall we? I'm God, you're not, and you're going here. I want you to think for a moment of the, the greatest second chance that you ever had. All of us have had second chances, I suspect. But I'd like you to get in mind the one that was your greatest second chance. Do you have one in mind? Nod your heads, yes. Raise your hand if you've got a second chance in mind. Only eight of you had second chances. The rest of you have lived perfect lives. I don't believe you. Mine is an easy one. It was in 2003. My family was vacationing in Sun Valley, Idaho. And one day we went to, to ice skate on the outdoor ice skating rink. It was hot. There was a layer of water. Make a long story short, I slipped. I fell on my face, and I suffered a traumatic brain swell. Um, The doctors described my condition as grave. I woke up with a tube down my throat and my arms tied to a gurney in the ICU in a 
Boise Hospital. The doctors, uh, as I said, uh, were not optimistic, and, uh, and the church went into prayer mode, really. So when I discovered myself out of that hospital two days later, I really considered it to be a miraculous work of the Lord. And so did everyone else who had been praying for me. Uh, I had no residual effects to this very day, to this very day, to this very... <laughs> In the weeks that followed my accident, I began to reflect on what this second chance in my life ought to represent. And, uh, and one thing that I decided was this. I was a, a kind of a pastor workaholic, and I wanted to spend more time with my children. And so one of the changes I made was this. I wasn't going to schedule early morning church meetings every day. And instead, I decided I want to walk my children to their bus stop. I'm sure I didn't end up as productive as I might have been with that decision, but I've never regretted that decision. That was my second chance. That was my wake-up call, and I didn't want to squander it. Jonah had a second chance, and this time, we read, he obeyed the Lord. God says, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah, we read, arose and went to Nineveh. Yay! And preached the most half hearted sermon ever preached in the Bible. Really? In Hebrew, there are only five words to Jonah's sermon. In English, eight. We translated it. The eight-word English translation is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's probably the shortest sermon ever preached. And I know what some of you are thinking. Wow, an eight-word sermon. What must that be like? Lucky Ninevites. What parent has not said something like this? You are not going anywhere until you make that bed. And so they might make their bed, but it will likely be the lousiest bed making ever in the history of linens. And God said, you're going to go to Nineveh to preach. And he said, okay. I know it's pointless to run away. I tried that, so I'll go. But I am not going to give very much to this sermon. But at least he obeyed. That was a starting point. And look what God did, even with that half-hearted obedience. Listen again. And Jonah called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. One commentator has described this as the greatest revival in the history of the world. From an eight-word sermon 
Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word overthrown is very interesting in the Hebrew. The, the, uh, the, the most uh, common translation of that word would be destroyed. Just as the Ninevites seem to expect. It would be overthrown, thrown over, destroyed. The secondary translation of that word, though, can mean turn around. Repent. So that word means both of these things. And it is clear that the Ninevites have a sense of both of those meanings. They do understand what is at stake here. They do believe that in 40 days they are going to be judged for their evil ways and God is going to overthrow them. But they also hold out hope that there's a chance that if they change their ways, if they change their hearts, if they change their direction, that God might change his mind. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah said. And now we read the, one of the most amazing verses in Scripture. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Just like that. Just as simple as that. These awful, bloodthirsty people believed God. The Holy Spirit took Jonah's off-the-cuff, half-hearted sermon, and he stirred the hearts of this evil people to repentance. They began by fasting as an act of their repentance. That was common. They stopped eating food. They put on sackcloth for the same reason. Sackcloth was the coarsest um, material that was woven out of the coarsest goat hair. It was used primarily to make what? Sacks, hence the name, sackcloth. Our equivalent would be burlap. Can you imagine wearing burlap? But when it was worn, sackcloth was a sign of humility, of repentance. That's what the people did. This was a bottom-up revival. But what would the king, the, the man in power and his nobles, what would they do with this word? It's astounding, isn't it? We read that when the when the, when the king heard what was going on, he did four things. He got up from his throne. He removed his robes of power. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat down in a pile of ashes. It was the ultimate express, expression of humility, of, of humiliation and repentance. And he didn't stop there. He doubled down on what the people had already decided to do. He decreed not only that they would not fast, they wouldn't even eat anything. In fact, they would not only not eat, they would not drink anything. And it wasn't just for the people, it was for the animals as well. How long can you go without drinking water? Not very long. He said, but we are going to fast from food, we're going to fast from water, we're going to take no nutrition, nothing, until God turns his heart toward us. I used to live near a big cattle ranch. When they were hungry, you could hear those beasts a mile away, literally. Even the beasts in this story end up crying out, mightily to God, as the text says. And there's more. As a further sign of their repentance, he said, even the animals are going to be wearing sackcloth, which is pretty funny when you think about it. Those sheep are walking around with burlap sacks on. They say, what in the world just happened to me? Sheep, goats, donkeys, all of them wearing burlap, all of them as a corporate sign of their humility before God. But that was the response that was stirred by the Holy Spirit with this sermon of five Hebrew words, eight English words. And the people's desperate hope is summarized in the words of the king in verse 9 when he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Who knows? 
I know that things look bad. I, I know that Nineveh, our city, stands under judgment for all the evil that we have done. But who knows? Maybe if we are really sorry, maybe if we humble ourselves before our great God, maybe if we turn from our evil and violent ways, who knows? Maybe God will relent. And guess what? He did. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. One of the greatest revivals ever, all because of five half-hearted Hebrew words spoken by a reluctant but obedient servant of God. Some of you know me for a long time. You might be surprised to discover how reluctant I can sometimes be to share my faith. You see me up front in front of hundreds of people preaching every week and you assume that it comes easily for me and in a sense this kind of does. But I'm actually a more introverted person than most of you realize. And I suppose I have enough insecurities that I don't want people writing me off as a religious nut. So honestly, I don't speak as easily or often about Jesus outside of this pulpit as I ought to, as I wish I did. I am not proud of it, but it's the truth. But God has been working on me. Alpha has been working on me. Jonah has been working on me. And so I have been intentionally trying to be more aware, more obedient, more sensitive, more courageous about opportunities to speak for God. While we were in Indy, we went to a very famous ice cream shop. It's called Grater's. Been there since the 19th century. And we were waited on by a very friendly and vivacious woman who was handing out samples like there was no tomorrow. A couple more samples, I wouldn't need to buy any ice cream. They were so big. And, uh, and so when the time came for me and I paid the bill, they all sat down to eat. I paid the bill. I, I, I just very, you know, just making small talk. I said, how are you doing? She paused a moment. She said, it's been a, a very rough couple of weeks. This was out of character with what we had seen so far. And I knew that this was my moment of decision. Do I say, I'm sorry to hear that. Could I please have my butter pecan? <laughs> I decided to take the bait. So I said, why has it been hard? And she said, because two weeks ago, I lost my grandson. And then the tears started to come. And she said, I'm not supposed to cry in the ice cream store. And I said, you can cry in front of me. How old was your grandson? She said, he was nine. And he died of an asthmatic attack. And then the tears just began to flow. And I reached out across the counter and I took her hand. And I said, I am so sorry. That is just awful. And I said, I'm going to pray for you and for your family. Is that okay? And she said, yes. And I said, and I, the peace of the Lord guard your heart. And then I took my butter pecan and I went and sat down. I didn't lead her to Christ. I didn't pray with her in that moment. Maybe I should have. I, but I was trying to pay attention to what the Spirit was doing. 
And I tried to speak to her on behalf of the Lord. And I I wish it weren't so remarkable as to mention it, but honestly it is. And it's the part of my Christian witness that God is working on. Which makes this text even more astounding to me. Because God uses five half-hearted words spoken by a reluctant prophet to bring about revival. Eight words translated into our language. God could have done it all by himself. He didn't need Jonah to bring his message to those people. And yet he chose, and he still chooses, to work through his followers. Both the enthusiastic and the reluctant. Both the articulate and the tongue-tied. Both the passionate and the indifferent. And when we stop running, when we stop dodging him, when we allow God to swallow us up and deposit us where he wants us to go and and speak what he ordered us to speak, no matter how we might feel about it, apparently the Holy Spirit is able to use those words to turn the hearts of people. And he still wants to do that. I really thought a lot about this this week. Most of you would probably claim to be followers of Jesus. I hope some of you are not. We're glad because we want to share this news with people who have not yet heard about the gospel. But I suspect that most of you would claim to be followers of Jesus. So I want to ask this simple question that I asked myself this week. When was the last time you spoke eight words of witness for your Savior? When was the last time you spoke eight words of witness for your Savior? It's not that many words. Wouldn't take that much courage. And so I thought, well, what kind of eight word messages could we give that would say something in a very short mess? So I wrote a bunch of eight word messages, eight word sermons for y'all. Here they are. You can pick the one that you like the most here, the one that might make most difference in the person that God has laid on your heart. Here they are, eight word messages. I am your friend and I love you. Is it okay if I pray for you? God loves you more than you love yourself. Or how about this? This would take guts. The way you treat your wife dishonors her. Or when you drink, you become a different person. Or celebrate recovery is a safe place for you. Or mops might be a perfect group for you. Or alpha might answer some of your good questions. Or Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Eight words. These are just my ideas. The point is, if you are willing to obey, even if you're reluctant, the Holy Spirit can take your few bumbling words and do miracles with them. So I ask it again. When was the last time you spoke eight words of witness for your Savior? Has God placed someone on your heart? You know that he's wanting you to reach out to him and you just, you are heading to Tarshish. You're running away because it scares you for some reason. You feel inadequate or whatever. Can you say eight words? Maybe even before you get up today, you'll take the back of that bullet and you write down the person that God's calling you to and the eight word sermon that you think you're called to, to share with them. And then ask God for the opportunity and the courage to speak them and then watch what happens. Like the king, we might say, who knows? Who knows? Who knows what might happen when God pours out his reckless love through you?
Lord, I love the look of our people staring back at me and taking this in. I pray, Lord, that they are struggling with this message as much as I did. I pray, Lord, that they might be confessing their muteness as I have confessed mine before you. I pray that we might not be so ungrateful that we could speak eight words of praise for who you are and what you have done when the opportunity presents itself. I pray that this might stir something in our hearts that we would walk out of here willing to obey however reluctant or inadequate we might feel because we believe that your Holy Spirit can use even our bumbling, reluctant words. God, make us better at sharing the good news of Jesus. Stir our hearts to love your people, the people that you love, the people that you sent your son to save. May we do that better than we do it now. Who knows what you might do? So we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.